Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 55, Overvoltage Protection and Lithium Batteries. So most Sonics pilots are flying engines like the Aero-V and the Jabiru that utilize a permanent magnet alternator. These systems are simple and they're very effective, but they can benefit from some carefully constructed electrical system architecture that incorporates active voltage protection. And we'll talk about what all that means. So we have electrical guru Bob Knuckles. He's come back from his previous appearances, and he's going to help us dig through overvoltage protection and a whole lot more and explain some simple practices that we can use in our airplanes. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonics 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me again are my two good flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. John is best known for his many YX customizations, and now he's deep into the conversion of his YX B-model project. So, John, uh, I saw you mated the forward and aft fuselage back together. How's it coming? Oh, we're uh, going to be rigging the wings this weekend with uh, help from one of our Sonics podcast uh, listeners. Uh, Paul's coming down from Gillette, Wyoming. Uh, he wants to learn how to rig, and uh, we're rigging the wings this weekend. Nice. Now... I didn't see all the stuff inside the tub. Do you have the tank in and the panel and all the structure, or are you going to do that after the rings are done? No, it's all after the wings. Um, all I've basically done is I've grafted the uh, the forward fuselage to the empennage, made everything square, you know, verified everything is uh, lined up and ready for the, uh, the wings to come on. Um, it's not even riveted on yet because I wanted to make sure that everything lined up properly, uh, got the wings rigged, uh, before I start uh, buttoning everything up, then all that other stuff goes on. You know, the tank and the uh, the seat pan is basically done. Uh, but uh, other than that, uh, yeah, what you see there is just everything uh, on the 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 outer skin is done. Yeah, and that makes sense. Uh, all that stuff just gets in the way anyway. So why does might as well just defer that till later. And I, I'm using the uh, in my, our own podcast here uh, from our other B model uh, guy who uh, finished. He said, uh, "Make sure that you rig the wings before you put the forward fuselage on or the forward firewall." And actually, I can see exactly what he's talking about now. Um, I have full access to do the drilling of those uh, the wings uh, without any leaning over or getting into an uncomfortable position. I think I'm going to get a really tight, uh, clean. Uh, wing rigging, just, you know, taking advantage of, of his previous experience. Yeah, that was a great tip, so I'm glad it's working out. All right, well, good deal. Uh, keep the pictures coming. Uh, I, I enjoy seeing them, too. And also, Gary Motley. Gary is a longtime pilot, former CFI, and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, uh, I'm sure that you're taking advantage of this great weather uh, now that you're back from your European adventure. Um, how's it going? You're absolutely right. Actually, it was a great day out here in Colorado. I got finished with work at a reasonable period of time and ran up to the airport and got in a little bit less than an hour's worth of flight just to just to settle my nerves and you know enjoy the flight and the day and play with the autopilot a little bit. And came back and it was a great day. Good. 
Yeah, I uh, I went out and flew on Saturday. We had a Young Eagles rally, and so the chapter, we had 21 pilots flying Young Eagles. We flew about 120 kids waiting on the final tally, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. And it was just a beehive of activity. It was great fun. Yeah, I saw some of your Facebook pictures with all the kitties in there. Yeah, um, I had seven legs, uh, a leg flying to the rally. I had four kids, one other Sonics builder, and then a leg coming home. And uh, so seven seven individual flights on Saturday. I was just really, really pleased. Nice. Well, I'm really glad the weather's good. Uh, now I'm going to start being able to sneak in some of those after-work flights. And I'm telling you, I was really missing that. So the weather's beautiful, and I'm taking full advantage of it. Yeah, it's a, getting to be a really good time of the year. Yeah. Well, and as previously mentioned, back again to talk electrical systems is Bob Knuckles. Bob has over 40 years of experience with aircraft electrical system design. He's worked for a bunch of different companies doing electrical system integration and design work. And he's best known in the experimental amateur built world for his work on the Aero Electric Connection. He runs a website and there's a list server where he exchanges all this information that he's accumulated for the last 40 years. So, Bob, thanks for coming back. Uh, I think it was episode 20 and 21 when you were on here previously. That was a year, year and a half ago. Really appreciate you coming back on. Oh, I'm glad to do it. We could do it more often. I just, uh, you, you just have to rattle my cage because I, I get involved in a lot of other things. And I forget about you guys. I mean, you know, don't. <laughs> well, irons in the fire. Uh, we talked about this. Uh, you, you have this problem like a lot of us do. You have a lot of irons in the fire. You, you got that right. Well, good. And uh, just uh, to your credit, the electrical system episodes were some of the most popular episodes, and they're consistently ranked as some of the favorites. So thanks for that. And it just shows that people are just really, really hungry for all these tips. And I think electrical systems are across the board kind of a weak spot in the EAB community. Well, that's what started the Aeroelectric Connection. I was doing design work for BNC Specialty Products back in uh, 1984, 85. And he took me to Oshkosh for my first trip in 1986. I worked behind the booth with uh, with him and, and was basically people coming up to the booth asking questions and, and trying to help them out. And in that week, I learned that the electrical system was probably the least understood system in the airplane. And that's where the idea for the aeroelectric connection was born. In fact, I'd had almost nothing to do with experimental airplanes up to that time. And walking out across the field, I was amazed at the level of craftsmanship and the technology that was going into those airplanes. I had spent my whole life working on Cessnas and beaches and Learjets and that sort of thing. And now out here's these little white fiberglass things that Bert Rutan put out. Truly amazing flying machines. And uh, and that's where the aeroelectric connection was born. And golly, that's been, what, 30 some odd years ago. And I'm just having a blast with it. In fact, I've done my last effort on a certified airplane. I, I wrapped that up here about a year and a half ago. And I'm, I'm not doing it anymore. You guys have got my 100% attention. Good. We'll take well, it. Bob, it yeah. <laughs> Great that you're willing to participate with us. You know, the aircraft manufacturers do a, a really good job about how to assemble their aircraft. Uh, the engine companies give you what they need to, to to actually, you know, get the engine to run. But the problem is getting everything to tie together. And, and, and that's the part that really seems to be missing in most of the experimental community. And that's why we really appreciate your your resources and the willingness to help us. 
Well, please, please to be of service and, uh, and let's do more of it. All right. Well, let's jump right in here. Um, so again, just to kind of put this in perspective, what we want to talk about is the typical Sonics builder putting in a Jabiru or an Aero V engine. They, they know they, they're going to have a permanent magnet alternator. They know they're going to have a voltage regulator, which is going to supply charging current to their battery. But beyond the simple diagrams of hook the output to your battery, there's a, there's a lot of confusion as to how exactly you should be managing that alternator. What are your options? How do you incorporate voltage monitoring and over-voltage protection? So I want to kind of peel this back a little bit at a time and talk about some of these best practices that we have learned over the last 20 years. So, Bob, maybe you can, maybe you can help us just kind of do a, a very quick one over the world on permanent magnet alternators and, and, how they are a little different from maybe what we're used to in our vehicles. Uh, I don't want to get too deep into it, but I want to set the stage for how we're going to uniquely control these guys rather than another alternator. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been trying to think, in fact, since we have been planning this, uh, this activity, I've been thinking for the last several days of trying to figure out a way to explain this, this little beast that's the permanent magnet alternator. They are very uncommon on airplanes. In fact, BNC Specialty Products was was one of the first ones to bring one to uh, home build aviation, and he did a special version to bolt onto uh, uh, vacuum pump pads on uh, on aircraft engines, and also had a belt driven version, and uh, did those at Burt Rutan's request back in the in the early '80s, and that's how I got associated with BNC in the first place was to. Uh, help him uh, uh, develop that alternator and select voltage regulators for it. Uh, it's an exceedingly simple device. There are no brushes. It, it has a magnet that spins inside a stationary coil. Uh, it's uh, exceedingly rugged, reliable. There's no reason for one to ever wear out. However, they, they can be abused such that they get that they're destroyed, uh, they, they cease to be useful. Uh, they have a, a, a serious disadvantage in that their voltage output is basically a function of engine RPM. And so many of these alternators do not put out useful uh, energy to the electrical system at, uh, say, certainly at idle or even at uh, ramp taxi speeds. It's not until you get airborne that you can begin to expect uh these alternators to put out their full capability. Is the term dynamo um, appropriate for these type of, of generation devices? I've heard that uh, term before. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Dynamo has been around for a very long time. It, it's, it's kind of a trademark name for the same generic principle. Okay, that's, that's what I wanted to kind of clarify. It yeah. was If we're talking a dynamo, are we talking something else or it's all the same thing? Yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like trying to differentiate between a permanent magnet alternator and a wound field alternator over which you have a great deal of control. In other words, the automotive versus the garden tractor variety alternators. Yeah, I'm th- I'm thinking more of the uh, the the old Yanmar tractors with a uh, a dynamo uh, generating in- energy versus a generator, which is you know from the old uh, Volkswagen engines. Uh, now to the alternators, which is a different uh, beast altogether. 
Yeah, except generators, the generators did have wound fields, and so you could still control them. Um, you could control the output from zero to full output by just adjusting a very low current in the field winding. And uh, alternators and generators share that, uh, that characteristic. Yeah, Bob, and that's kind of what I wanted to really hit on in, in the background. Unlike many other alternator systems that are out there in cars and, and other airplanes, the, the PM alternator is very simple, and so we don't have a lot of ability to control it. So our regulator really is important. If our regulator works properly, no issues. But if it starts to act up a little bit, we can we can incur some risk from that because of its unsophisticated nature. That's kind of the point I wanted to start with. Yeah. Well, Jess, are we talking, is this the same kind of a, a electrical generation that's in snowmobiles and motorcycles? Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, so we put magnets on the flywheel, and we spin those magnets inside of a stationary coil attached to the back housing of the engine. The right. the, the AeroV is like that, the Jabiru is like that, Rotax uses a lighting coil that's like that. So it's all very common, you know, your, your John Deere tractor does it. Um, I don't want this to become, you know, the, the intricacies of, of PM alternators, but I wanted to start with this appreciation that they're very simple and, and robust, and we love them for that, but a lot of the burden falls on the regulator, and then we can use the crowbar overvoltage protection to back up our regulator to keep anything from going too horribly awry. So so let me just, let's just kind of morph it into that. So, Bob, if, if you can just talk about overvoltage protection, you know, what what is the goal behind having an overvoltage protection system, and how does that work in conjunction with the function of the regulator? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, um, interestingly enough, overvoltage protection did not really start finding its way onto uh, even certified airplanes until about the mid-70s. In fact, I designed a, an overvoltage module that went into the single-engine Cessna's uh, in the early seventies and, and they build a gazillion of those doggone things. And we didn't even know we needed one until we had a particular kind of failure in the regulators that caused that alternator to run away. And back in the days of just generators, they, they were pretty weak need things. You were pretty much loading that generator to maximum all the time and if it ran away it couldn't really boost the bus very rapidly or very far and the battery would tend to absorb the the over uh, over voltage and then the the generator might even burn up because it's trying to to develop all the successive output alternators were a different beast those things if if they run away the 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 wound field alternators on our cars you can go cruising down the highway or uh, at highway speeds, or if you're in a, a Lycoming uh, belt-driven alternator installation where that alternator is turning at 10,000 RPM, if the regulator fails, that alternator would happily put out 200 volts. It wouldn't even wouldn't even breathe hard to get up to 200 volts. Well, Bob, and, pardon me. I, I need a, a little bit of clarification here. Then, on these permanent magnet stators that we're typically using in our aircraft engines. We talk about older voltage, but what kind of power output are we really talking about as far as volts or amperage? Well, a, I think uh, the voltages I measured on a Rotax when that thing is a cruise RPM, the actual AC voltage on that winding is up around 20 some odd volts open open circuit. 
And then when the regulator kicks in, starts loading that and feeding that energy off into uh, the system, the resistance in the alternator drops the voltage down to something more reasonable. So uh, PM, PM alternators are not capable of the blazing overvoltage uh, conditions that the, that the wound field alternators are. And what about total amperage? Well, that's, that's limited with? by the wire size. The amperage isn't going to go up materially. I mean, it'll, it'll start overheating the wires and, and burn them up. In fact, you've probably seen numerous articles on people's modifications to their wound fields on the aerobees and, and uh, various uh, Rotax engines and so forth, trying to get more current out of them, and they'll, they'll wind them with larger diameter wire. So yeah. if, the, if our stator alternator then puts out, we'll say, either 30 or rated for 50 amps, um, if, if the regulator goes out, it's really not going to put out much more of amperage, but we might right. get up 20 volts. Right. And well, yeah, right. Right. With today's modern electronics, uh, the way they're designed, uh, at what point do you really think that a voltage issue is really going to cause real damage to the avionics that we might currently have in the latest generation. Oh, avionics are probably not the biggest uh, biggest risks now, but your instruments are. Uh, if you got uh, steam gauge instruments, uh, you got uh, incandescent landing lights, and the battery. The battery's the guy that's going to get hurt. Well, I'm thinking most of us now. I'm, I'm thinking more along the lines of, of the ephesus that that many people are gravitating to now. Uh -huh. uh, that who might be concerned about, is that really probably so much of an issue or a real major concern now at this point of 20 volts? Uh, you got to look at the manual on it, but many of those of those products are rated to run anywhere from 9 to like 32 volts. And so an overvoltage condition in your permanent magnet alternator driven system is not going to hurt that device. Okay, so... We're maybe just talking more about some of our legacy instruments in avionics. And yeah. And but, but it's a big unknown, Gary. Um, you know, I think uh, I don't want people to get the impression that, you know, they're, they're completely felt tolerant, that any sort of voltage that we throw at it is going to be absorbed by these instruments. Many of them have a very robust design and can handle it, but uh, I would not count on that. Well, I'll just try to put some perspective into it as, as far as what, what voltage we're really talking about out of the permanent magnets yeah. versus some of the belt-driven alternators where we, we hear these exorbitant yeah. amounts. Of yeah, that's a good question. And the, pre, and the permanent magnet alternators rather benign in that respect. Okay. Thanks. And, and in fact, the vast majority of failures in PM alternator systems is not overvoltage. It's the regulator just turns the toast and it quits. Right. Yeah, so so let's let's um, let's hit that. If the regulator fails in flight, and we'll talk about the reasons in a little bit why it might fail. But if it does fail, what is going to happen? Well, the 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 PM alternator is going to send possibly it's going to send unrectified AC current through the that regulator back into your bus. And it could be at whatever voltage its maximum voltage is capable of producing. So you could get you could get a very strange, uh, ripply current coming into your bus that could be in the twenty or possibly thirty volt range. Uh, it's more likely that uh, uh, the control device within the regulator that stands between your permanent magnet alternator and the rest of the airplane is basically a bridge rectifier. 
and it's a controlled bridge rectifier, meaning that it's turned on and off in a uh, sort of a duty cycle monitored fashion to maintain the voltage at a consistent level. That same rectifier has to carry the whole alternator output. So if you've got a, uh, oh, I think there's guys putting these John Deere three-phase alternators on their uh, uh, Corvair engines, and uh, those are really robust regulators, by golly, and they run hot uh because they have to carry that whole 30 amps and on your airplanes what are the aero v and, and that thing down around the 18 amp class as i recall yeah they're they're in the uh the 10 to 20 amp range the older aero v's had 10 amp alternators and the newer ones are rated at 20 in any case whatever that alternator is capable of delivering to your system the regulator has to carry that mm-hmm. that amount of current which is unlike the regulator for a belt-driven alternator in, in uh, cars and, and most airplanes. So okay. it's the importance of making sure where your placement of your regulator is and or possibly having a cold air vent system of supply to it. There you go. You can't overcool those puppies. I'm, I'm deeply <laughs> disappointed with the ability of, uh, of individuals to come up with, with regulators that will will work well in airplanes with permanent magnet alternators and bnc is working on one now and it's it's going to be in the class of the side of hentech i think it is or hectech that looked to me like that was going to be a pretty robust system but people tell me they're burning those up and i'd sure like to see failure analysis on those devices yeah i've tried to find a source here in the u.s for those hectech regulators and i haven't found one yet i'd like to try one myself I had one in here. A friend of mine ordered one through a friend of his in Europe, and, and he's got it on his airplane. I'll have to track him down and see if he's still running it. Uh, and and uh, Hectech isn't the only people putting those out. There's a Japanese company. Uh, oh, golly. Uh, they've got a bunch of offerings on eBay, for example. And some of them which claim to be FET. Uh, control devices as opposed to the silicon control rectifiers. There's some newer technology out there that runs much cooler. But those guys, I think BNC's tried to work with those guys and see if they could get a, a suitable uh, product out of them. And as soon as you say, well, we want to put these on airplanes, they kind of pull their head back in the sand and say, go away. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, I got kind of another couple of questions then about about the failure portion of this thing, if we can. Sure. Um, it, it, we talk about regulator failures and, and having a, a surge of mostly voltage. Um, is that going to be a constant thing, or is that most likely just the initial surge until the regulator dies and then it basically cuts off the entire flow? Well, there's a there's a process called failure mode effects analysis. And that's my number one favorite way to uh, evaluate the robustness and riskiness of any particular system. And what it involves is taking the the schematic, the whole bill of materials for a system and say, all right, let's pick one component out of that, out of that array of parts and say, what are the ways that thing can fail? Well, if it's a resistor, it can fail open, resistors never fail shorted, 
uh, it can change value and they almost never go down. Well, now wait a minute, if it's a carbon resistor, it might go down, but if it's a metal film, it might go up or open. And so you go through this litany of, of uh, thought process to decide how the, the failure of that particular component would manifest itself. And what you ultimately find is that uh, probably 90% of the component failures in a system are rather benign as, well, if this thing fails, it's just going to quit. And having something quit just simply means, okay, you go to plan B. Uh, I don't worry about things that, that uh, just decide to die. But uh, occasionally you get a, uh, a situation where the, if this resistor opens up, the regulator literally loses control of the, the alternator and it goes to full field. But what we're, I'm trying to really figure out is in the vast majority of cases that you might anticipate with what we're installing, would it be a, a complete wide open gate or would it just fail and not transmit uh, the energy from the stator to the bus? Uh, I would say most of the failures that you're going to see on PM uh, alternator systems are going to be they just they quit. To, you know, all of a sudden it quits charging and you've got a low voltage situation and you start to troubleshoot it and you find the windings are burned up in the alternator or the, the regulator is oozing melted epoxy or something like that. Uh, an over voltage condition in a permanent magnet system is exceedingly rare. It's not, but the risk is not zero. Okay, that's what I was really trying to, to, to bore down yeah. on, just kind of get a general perspective. Because we always understand there can, there can always be exceptions, but I just wanted to see. You, you were getting a little bit too technical for me. I needed to dumb it down a little bit. Okay, I understand. Well, that's, yeah. that's what it's about. <laughs> Gary, he, here's what I have, have observed, you know, watching this for several years. So, um, you know, I've had, I've had a regulator failure of my own, and that's what happened. I just the battery wasn't being topped off. It was, I think, maybe kind of intermittent. It, it would only charge a little bit, you know, that type of thing. And then eventually it just stopped charging altogether and I had to replace the, the regulator and suddenly I start charging my battery again. So that's, that's what I've observed personally. I have, I have seen and talked to other people where they've had that happen, but they've had the opposite happen where the regulator itself has had problems. Now I haven't, I haven't had anybody say that they've had high voltage go in and smoke their entire panel. I suppose that's the big scary scenario that we're trying to guard against, but I have had a couple of different people, one in, uh, I know it was in a Rotax and another one, I, I can't recall exactly what type of engine it was, but again, PM alternator, where the regulator itself got so hot that it turned to slag. And, you know, one, it burnt a hole through the firewall because it was just, you know, roasting through this thing. Um, that, you know, that potentially can cause a fire in the vicinity around it. The regulator cooking itself is you know, is not the end of the world, but that thing starting something else on fire could be, you know, catastrophic. Yeah, my limited experience, too, has just been basically when it when it fails is I just lose the charging capability to my system, and now I'm just draining straight from the batteries. Right, uh, right. That's why I wanted to find out if we're really, what, what our real proportional risk probably is, if, it's, if that's the 99.9% .9 of it versus, you know, the other extreme where you've got, you know, a thousand amps of current going from these things and just no. disintegrating everything in its path. No, that, that, uh, these alternators are exceedingly limited in the first place. In other words, uh, you could, 
severely overloaded on one of these permanent magnet alternators, and you're still not going to get more than 20 amps out of it. It won't happen. In fact, any alternator, they are magnetically limited. A 60-amp alternator can't put out more than about 70, 75 amps when it's cold. And uh, now generators are the other way around. You ask a generator to, to run away, you full-field a generator and take a 25-amp alternator or generator and say, give me 50 amps, and it'll say, okay. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you got solder slinging out of the commutator. But uh, Basically, I'm starting to feel a little better. <laughs> oh, good. Good. No. Well, but, well, Bob. For, for those of us who are electrically challenged, um, twenty amps seems to me to be a lot of power that can do a lot of damage. Is that true? Uh, it depends on what's already uh, turned on. I mean, what another? This this is one of my biggest pet peeves with all with electrical systems and home build airplanes. When a guy calls me and says, "Well, I'm having this and such and such a problem. Can't keep this charge and." No voltages are not right. I said, have you done a load analysis for your airplane? Oh, well, I've got all these breakers. He'll tell me what all the size of the breakers are. I said, no. How much <laughs> energy does it take to run your airplane? And he says, well, I don't know that. I says, well, do you have operating manuals on all this stuff? It gives you all that information in there. And, so and yeah, what Bob's really saying, guys, is we have to go through and look at every instrument, we everything that's electrical well, on our plane. No, and add up what the manufacturer says is the maximum draw potential. I understand that, well, Gary. I mean, we're talking about everything connecting properly, but if we have a short, no, no, you know, no, 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 uh, just a second. I'm leading up to this. There okay. are people that are, that are flying around with 20 amp alternators that are loaded to 18 amps. Now, let's suppose the regulator decides, okay, I'm going to shoot for the moon, and it's only got two amps of excess current to do to shoot at the moon with and that guy's going to probably continue the flight not even knowing that anything happened now if you've got another kind of an airplane that flies along and has a running load of about five amps and it's got a 60 amp alternator in it now you got 55 amps of excess capability that if that alternator decides to go for the moon that could be a serious consequence in your airplane so what i'm getting at it depends on how heavily your alternator is normally loaded if it's running close to maximum now and 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 you get a voltage regulation problem you probably aren't even going to know it good to, good point good to know i mean I, I i'm running a stock uh, uh jabiru which has a 20 amp uh permanent magnet alternator um i really don't have to worry about you know getting up to that uh 50 amp uh load coming across my firewall no no and your your battery is going to absorb the excess the battery is your first uh bastion of defense against a runaway alternator and in so, fact when we design over voltage systems on really big alternators we'll we'll wait for the voltage to get above 16 volts and we wait for uh uh, a half a second or a second before we trip the thing off because we don't want a nuisance trip and we know in the meantime the battery's going to be grunting all that excess output that voltage doesn't take off for the moon is there is there a point where we get to say that we are running a significant more risk to frying our entire system by over oh no that's why i always put over voltage protection on there <laughs> I, mean, I, I just assume that the regulator is going to fail and then I put over voltage protection on there. That's a, the second line of defense for that. 
now I'm kind of getting back where I'm getting confused somewhere along the line here. If we've kind of previously established that our 20 or 30 amp stator alternator is really not going to put out an excessive, it's not going to put out more than the 20 or 30 amps. Right. And the amount of load is probably not going to adversely affect our avionics. Um, what kind of extra protection do we really need? What kind of extremes do we need to go through? Well, well Gary, you were, we need to differentiate the amperage versus the voltage. I mean, we, we have an over-voltage protection, but do we have an over-amperage protection? Well, we were talking about IS specifically, you know, what kind of voltage might we transiently see through these. And you know, I understood that Bob said we might be up to about maybe 20 volts or so, but it seems as if most of our current or new generation EPISs uh, are starting to be able to manage up to 30-something volts. But the battery, the battery isn't going to let it get that high. Let's suppose you're flying along, you've got a 20-amp capable alternator, you're only consuming 10 amps at the time, and the regulator fails and tells the alternator, okay, let's go full bore. Now you've got 10 amps of excess chargeability or output energy, and the voltage is going to start climbing up, but the battery is going to resist that. You're going to start trying to charge, overcharge the battery. And the voltage will start to climb slowly, but it's only going to climb in so it, at the rate as as it would if it's got a ten amp of excess charge to it. So I can take a battery and go out and put it on the bench, a fully charged battery, and uh, and then just stick a power supply on it and say, okay, let's stuff ten amps into this battery, and uh, at at whatever no voltage limit let's just stuff that current in there and the voltage will slowly start to rise up and depending on the condition of the battery uh it might get up to uh 16 17 18 volts over a period of several minutes now the battery is gasping for for mercy but it will it will absorb that excess energy in plenty of time for an over voltage system to do its job Bob, is that true for both a lead-acid battery and a lithium battery? Within kind of limits. Now, lithium batteries are kind of fragile devices, and so they put this battery management system in there, which will deliberately unhook the battery if the voltage gets above some, some preset level. And now when that happens, all of a sudden the battery just disappears off the system, and the voltage will go to whatever it wants to go. So that's over voltage protection. It's unique to the battery, and it says to heck with the rest of the system. <laughs> I I don't know. I've got an EarthX out here on the bench. I've thought, well, maybe I ought to put a 40-amp overcharge on that sometime and watch the voltage go up and see what it does. But I can probably write to EarthX, and, and they can probably tell me what it's going to do. But at some point in time, it's just going to unhook, and then the bus voltage will shoot up, and, and it's, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, so then we, if, if you're running that kind of system, there's a potential for the battery no longer regulating the voltage, and you could have that direct alternator spike of voltage to the bus. Yes, except that you're over voltage. The battery's going to absorb it for some period of time, and it's going to be like on the order of uh, seconds to maybe minutes, but it's going to be plenty of time for your normal over voltage protection to shut the alternator down. If you have that in place, yes, and that and that's kind of the point. I wanna I wanna bring this back to the over voltage 
So we've described a bunch of things that could happen. If your alternator is grossly oversized for your airplane's demands, there might be some risk that if the thing went crazy, you would have to absorb all that excess capacity. That's that's a problem for a handful of, of combinations out there, but not generally for the AeroV and Jabiru crowd. Uh, maybe something like in the UL power or possibly uh, aftermarket for a Rotax or a Camet or something like that. But again, that's kind of a, a relatively um, unlikely scenario. So if your alternator starts to misbehave and you put in excessively high voltage, your modern EFIS and radios and things like that will probably handle a degree of overvoltage without too much problem. Some of your less sophisticated devices may not, and they may burn themselves out. But your battery typically is going to is gonna absorb some of this overvoltage for a short time, but eventually it's going to give up also. So right. it's really a multi-phased approach. Your your regulator does the 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 ninety nine percent of the time. It does the heavy lifting, keeping everything in check. the The last line of defense is the built in robustness of the electrical devices that are installed in your panel. But in between the regulator and the robust design that your accessories have, we put another layer of defense in with this over voltage protection module, which right. again watches in the background and can immediately take action to isolate a runaway alternator or a misbehaving regulator from the rest of the system. And it will do that in under a second. Right. Okay. So I guess while we while we have this thread, let's just kind of continue to, to pull this. So Bob, explain how you know, how do we use this overvoltage module? And I know BNC is is one common supplier of these modules, and there may be others out there, but I'm going to really talk about the BNC one because that's the one I know the best. Explain how this module does that. How does it sit in the background and and help isolate a, a misbehaving regulator from your system? And again, we want to go with a high-level sort of, you know, uh, dumb dumb gut level understanding rather than the real technical side of it. Okay. Well, that that module that BNC sells is a design that I did originally and almost got it qualified onto the the model 38 Lightning or something out at Beach. It was a turbine-powered Bonanza. And the, the idea behind it is it says, all of the current that it takes to run an alternator has to come through the field circuit breaker or through the alternator on off switch, but there is a field circuit breaker. And one of the easiest ways to remove that current from the field is to simply throw a dead short onto that circuit breaker and cause it to pop. We're not asking the, that circuit breaker to do anything it wasn't designed to do. And it, it doesn't add any relays into the system, which was a, a real plus from the standpoint of reliability and cost. So that overvoltage module is nothing but a little silicon control rectifier and an accurate voltage trigger device. It says if the voltage goes above 16 volts for more than about a half a second, we trigger that switch on and throw a dead short onto the field circuit breaker. And the breaker pops and the alternator is tamed. And Beach loved that. Man, I, I, and I loved it too. I was, I was about ready to get that on certified airplanes. And uh, it had been used in computers for, for years. It's called Crowbar Overvoltage Protection. Well, that program got canceled. 
And I didn't get a chance to try it again until the BNC series of regulators were coming out, and that got put into all the LR series uh, linear regulators at BNC, which ultimately got STC'd onto certified airplanes. In the meantime, here come the permanent magnet alternators, and they don't have a field. So the only way I could use the crowbar system on those was to put in a relay, which controlled the output from the, from the uh, alternator to the bus, and use the crowbar module to open that relay. But it still pops a breaker, and the relay opens, and the alternator is off doing its thing, and it's disconnected from the bus. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's just a smart switch is all it is. It says, hey, this voltage is too high, and I'm going to throw a short on that breaker, and the breaker's going to open, and it's going to bring everything under control in milliseconds, literally less than a half a second. So. Now, Bob, let me uh, let me just offer um, an alternative to put this in perspective. How 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 useful the system is. If you did not have this overvoltage protection, this crowbar system, your alternative would be for you to stare at your voltmeter, watching for an excursion that got too high. And if it did, if you saw that voltage going above the the, the danger zone, and uh, you were seeing 15, 16 volts, then you would reach over and you would turn off your alternator control switch, whatever that whatever that did. And so you would have to have one eye out the window and one eye glued to your voltmeter, trying to detect you know within a second or two of an overvoltage condition. The crowbar system is constantly watching that, and it just reaches over and and pops that control breaker for you, and so you don't have to have one eye glued to your voltmeter. Exactly, and and the way you know that you've had this happen is that your low voltage warning light comes on because the alternator just shut down, and uh, and this is why every airplane ought to have a low voltage warning light. It, it tells you that you've either you forgot to turn the alternator on. It tells you if the alternator has failed, or it tells you that the alternator has been shut down due to an overvoltage condition. That one light does it all. So, Bob, this crowbar thing, it's 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 more than just a simple fuse that melts because of overamperage. There's a secondary system to this thing that senses voltage rather than amperage. And then if the voltage gets too high, it breaks the fuse. Is, is that my well, understanding? The crowbar module, when it sees an overvoltage condition, it throws a short on the breaker that supplies control to the alternator. In other words, it, it deprives the alternator of its control voltage and, and shuts it off. It does the same thing as if you'd reached up and flipped the switch on the panel to shut off the alternator. But again, with a permanent magnet, we don't have an alternator field, correct? No, we add the relay. That's when we when we do it with a permanent magnet, we have to add this extra relay, and that shows on uh, on uh, a lot of the Z figures in my in fact all the Z figures in my book. Yeah, Gary, um, if you're going to use it on a Jabiru or an AeroV, you're going to buy the overvoltage crowbar kit, and it's going to have a bunch of goodies in it. It's going to have the the crowbar module and a relay to control that regulator, and you're going to use those two as part of a kit to do that control. There you go. I don't remember that coming as part of the AeroV package or, or Sonics offering that kit. Sonics doesn't offer it. This is uh, you have to get it through B and C through through theirs. And uh, I'll put a link to um, to some reference materials so you can see how this thing uh, you know how it works. It may be easier for some people to look at the schematic to try to figure out how the crowbar and the relay and the and the alternator system all kind of work together. So I'll do that. I'll put that link in the show notes and you can go take a look there. Well, that's what I was trying to elicit is what's the real difference between 
how this thing actually functions mechanically versus just a simple, uh, like an ANL fuse or a typical circuit breaker that we might, or a fuse that we might put into our systems. Yes, and, and what you said, Gary, is essentially correct. This works on monitoring the voltage size. Now, it, it, it does pop the, the circuit breaker to do the controlling, but it's only looking at excessive voltage. It is not looking at excessive current like a circuit breaker or a fuse or even an ANL you know, diode would be doing. That's right. Okay, Bob. Um, now, delving a little bit more into how that, that relay is going to control the permanent magnet alternator. Let's talk about the two different options and the pros and cons of each. So you have your alternator, which is supplying your permanent magnet alternator, which is which is sending its its output to a voltage regulator. The voltage regulator is taking this AC current input. It's doing its job of of rectifying it to DC and then restricting the voltage to the set point of. 13, 14 volts, whatever the regulator's set to, and then outputting a relatively clean DC voltage out. And then you attach that output to your bus and you charge your battery and run your avionics and all that. So the two options that you have to control that that regulator is, one, you can connect or disconnect the output of the regulator to your bus. That's option number one. Or two, you can make or break connection of the alternator to the regulator itself by controlling the relay to control one of those AC lines. So can you just briefly tell us what are the pros and cons of doing option one or option two? Well, uh, if you look at the old Rotex, well, in fact, Rotex may still suggest this. They, they may show an alternator control switch in series with the output of the regulator. And that's certainly a way to, to, uh, uh, to control it, but when you do that, it completely unloads the regulator and the alternator is still maybe putting out full, maybe cruise RPM voltage and the regulator doesn't know what to do with all that excess voltage. Well, it has to be designed to withstand that. In other words, full voltage and no load. Maybe it does that fine. And, uh, but I've seen a lot of regulators that have melted down, like the situation that you discussed here earlier where the, they actually set the epoxy molding on fire. And they're, well, if you got an over-voltage condition, the best way to deal with it is to remove this energy source as far upstream as you can. And that means put the control switch in the AC input line. And Bob, before we, before we talk about that, let me just, I want to just add a little bit of clarity to this. If you were to do that, if you were to have your, your relay controlling the output of your regulator, you isolate it from the bus if you noticed that things were starting to get a little high, you weren't comfortable with the voltages you saw, and you flipped that relay and you isolate it from your bus, now your battery and your and your bus is fine. It's not going to have any sort of impacts from a misbehaving regulator. Right. But that regulator has a really tough job now. It has to absorb all of that energy that the alternator is pumping out, and maybe it can't hack it. And so that's where you run the risk of turning that thing into a molten slag. No, not not really. Most of the regulators are series devices now. So if the output current goes to zero, and it will as soon as you open that, that B-lead, then the current through the regulator, if everything's functioning properly, will go to zero, and the regulator will cool off. Now, the voltage may be quite high, but the current, the actual energy flowing through that system has gone to zero. But if the regulator okay. has malfunctioned, if it has shorted out inside... Now, 
uh, it's a whole different ball game. It still loads the alternator. It may continue to still get hot. And not only is the regulator destroyed, but it may destroy the alternator in the process. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's, there's a danger by controlling the output side that the regulator or the alternator may sustain damage, even though you flip the switch off. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that, so that, that makes the case for option two, which is to control the connection between the alternator and the regulator by controlling an AC line and explain how that all works. Well, it's, it's like, like I was mentioning before, the best way to bring an, an out of control system into, uh, into order is to remove the energy source as far upstream as you can. And you can't get any more upstream than, than the wire, one of the wires coming right out of the alternator itself. Now, if you had a clutch so you could unhook the alternator from the engine, that'd be, that'd be pretty good too. You stop the alternator from spinning, but that's probably not very practical. So, the next best thing is let's just break one of the wires coming out of the alternator. Yeah, and the re- and the relay makes that extremely easy. When the relay is energized, you have connection in your AC line. When the relay de-energizes, as in when the when the circuit breaker pops from your crowbar, then the relay de-energizes and now you you break that wire. And so yeah. it's super simple to control your alternator that way. Exactly. That relay is just a remotely controlled switch is all it is. Okay. Um, I, I hope that is clear as to, you know, the pros, cons of, of each of those. Um, I, the reason I, I say that is because most of the designs that you see floating around, you see a, a schematic someplace, they really don't even offer controlling the AC line as, as an option. They, they really just focus on isolating the output. And I don't, I don't agree that's the best way to do it. No, and we've discovered that over the years. Okay, well, if... If you've listened to the last 30, 40 minutes and your head is still kind of spinning, let me just kind of summarize it like this. Your regulator has the job of translating an inherently unusable signal out of your alternator into something that you can do useful work with, such as run your bus and your avionics and charge your battery. If that regulator starts to misbehave, you want an automatic system in the background that is watching your bus voltage and at a moment's notice can reach over and disconnect that regulator alternator system from your bus. And the easiest way to do that is to use the BNC overvoltage kit, which includes the crowbar module and a relay. And then you wire that relay to control one of your AC lines coming from your alternator. And it, it shuts down that alternator stone cold instantly. And that may, you get the best of both worlds. You get automatic protection. It's always got one eye on the thing for you. And if it does have to shut your alternator down, it does it in a way that stops all electrical generation. There's no risk of the regulator continuing to sustain damage or the alternator becoming damaged in the process as well. Right. Okay. So having, having kind of summarized that, let's talk about best practices for you know, your, your alternator, your regulator, uh, crowbar system, stuff like that. And, and the one I want to start with is how do we keep that regulator happy and safe and living a long, fruitful life? Uh, well, first is finding a regulator that's capable of that. And, and I don't know that anybody is producing a regulator with the same spirit and intent that we do for aircraft parts. Uh, meaning that most of the regulators that are on the market out there have pedigrees in motorcycles, snowmobiles, uh, garden tractors, and that that kind of market. And they are uh, 
but they just don't worry about the, the relatively high failure rate on them. People tell me that those, those things don't last very long on the garden tractors, and they just assume they're going to have to re- replace it every so often. And people that fly around in airplanes aren't really that sanguine about it. They <laughs> replacing the thing every two years is not is not a happy circumstance. Uh, I think BNC is currently working on an aircraft quality, and I, I hesitate to use that term. Because normally there's not no such thing as an aircraft quality part, except this is going to be a uh, a regulator that's designed with the aircraft market as a target market. It's an all solid state device. It ought to run the lifetime of the airplane. You should only have to put one regulator on your airplane for the time that you own it, and that's what B and C is going to be striving for. And Bob, we could use your help uh, prodding them over the finish line because I would like to be first on the pre-order list for that regulator. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's a bunch of people in line with you. Uh, you know that that's going to be a very popular product, I'm sure. In the meantime, you can't keep the darn things too cool. If you can, uh, I've had some guys take these little uh, 12 volt square uh, fans that they use in uh, in computers and mount one right over the heat sink fins on their regulator and just have it come on with the bus. That fan draws like maybe 100 mils, and, and air movement over the fins on a regulator just drops the temperature markedly. It doesn't take much air movement. Okay. Is that something that you would recommend that everybody consider doing, or maybe just in the worst cases you consider doing? Well, if they're, first of all, if they're having trouble with the persistent regulator failures, obviously something needs to change. Now, whether they add some cooling or move the regulator to another location or whatever, those are things we could discuss on, uh, you know, I'll join my forum. I mean, there's 1,500 guys out there that are just delighted to slog through these kinds of problems. Uh, I don't think there's a, you know, I, I, I don't think I'd write down a whole list of things. That here's what you ought to do with your regulator. Uh, but we know that, that getting them too hot is hard on them because they already run too hot inside. They're not well designed thermally. And if you could take care of the heat, that would probably get rid of 90% of the failures in the regulators that are already on the market. So, Bob, if you had to make a choice in where to mount your regulator, uh, what would be more beneficial? Slapping it on the firewall where you have good contact with a large heat sink or sticking it in an area that might get better uh, convective cooling and maybe some, some breeze blowing over it? Well, it's pretty doggone breezy on a firewall. Uh, in flight, I put thermocouples on various and sundry spots around firewalls on certified airplanes, and it doesn't get very hot up there as long as you're clear of radiant heating off the exhaust system. There's nothing automatically that says that putting it on a firewall is a bad thing. But, you know, there's a lot of instruments out there now that uh, voltmeters you can buy for just uh, 20 bucks that have thermocouple capability, and you can... You can plug this thermocouple into the front of it and take it out there and glue it onto your heat sink on your regulator and go out and fly the thing and see what that temperature is in flight. In flight uh, temperature testing is one of the single most important engineering tests we do on airplanes is find out whether the thing's getting too hot or too cold. And until you have numbers to work with, uh, you're just guessing. And, and someplace else in the firewall might be worse or sticking it on the back of the firewall up under the panel might even be worse yet because there's no airflow. Yeah, and I think that's a, a real common thing. If if there's a dead spot where there's nothing moving, 
that may be a problem for one of those accessories. Even if it is on the firewall, you could be attached to a large heatsink. But if there's absolutely no air moving around there, that may not be the best spot for it. Would it make sense to just put a uh, a little pancake uh, fan, 12-volt fan, you know, the little $5 ones, right on top of the fence? Sure. Of a Volkswagen regular? Why not? It, like you say, it doesn't draw much, and uh, just have it on there to, to blow some air over it. It's cheap, and it's easy, and the risks are low, and, and it might make a world of difference in how well that thing performs. Yeah, that's interesting. I think maybe I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to... I'm going to put my thermocouples on my regulator and start collecting some data on, on how it does. And then maybe I'll put a fan on there and do the same test. Uh, you're right, Bob. There's no substitute for actually gathering data yourself. Otherwise, you're just guessing and you're, you're trying to apply an imperfect understanding of theory. And you don't really know what you got to work with. Go gather some data and then you have hard figures you can analyze. Jeff, I'm going to short circuit you. I'm just going to put the fan on my regulator and sit down with it. <laughs> okay. You love you love to overanalyze stuff, and I just like to get to the right solution. Okay, well, possibly that's true. Okay, all right. Well, what other tips? So we talked about keeping your regulator cool, but one of the things that that I think about is um, you got to make sure that your electrical connections, where you connect to your regulator, aren't getting grimy and are vibrating and becoming loose and get and developing a high resistance connection it doesn't matter how cool you keep the thing if you if the connections get gunk in them and start to vibrate and get that metal slush that builds up you're eventually going to overheat those connections and you're going to burn out the wires so that's another thing you want to watch out for jeff you were looking at my my old wiring and my old sonics i mean that's that's really obnoxious i just wanted to beat you to it because i knew that's what you were going to say john Hey, I got a chance to rewire my whole airplane, so I'm listening. Well, uh, we spent a lot of time on the aeroelectric list on my forum talking about what I call the gas-tight connection. And and it's when you bring two metal pieces together that carry an electrical current, uh, you want to connect them in a manner in which they become almost one piece of metal. And that's what happens when you crimp a terminal onto a wire. If you cross-section that that crimp and look at it under a microscope, you can't see the difference between the strands of wire and the terminal. It's become one amorphous mass of metal. Now, the important part about that is, first of all, you've got a good electrical connection, and that's obvious. But the most important part is moisture carrying oxygen can't get into that joint and start eating it up. And so it's lack of gas tightness that lets corrosion start in the interface between those two pieces of metal. And that's where you got a terminal tied down to the structure for a ground, or you got a, um, a, a nut that you've run down on a terminal on a contactor. It's, it's all the same game. You got to keep that, that metal to metal connection as free of voids as you can. And, and in some cases, that means dope them up with uh, silicon grease before you, you crank them down. And at least if there's any voids in there, it's already filled with guck and the moisture can't get into it. So connector science is, is pretty, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, not, it's not arcane, but, but it's, there's some demands to it. And, 
and we've we've studied some switch failures on the Aero Electric list, and on my on my website, I show some switch failures that started with a poorly crimped terminal, and it got hot. And once it starts to get hot, the corrosion rate goes up, and the resistance starts to climb, which means it gets hotter still. And that that's a precipitating uh, cascade failure that ultimately uh, set the switch on fire. And, and it all started with a terminal that was uh, either the wrong material or it was improperly crimped. Do you recommend any particular uh, chemical compounds to use when putting some of these? Uh, generally, uh, no. And, and, you know, we, we looked at that. I had several requests out at Beach. Uh, some guy come in and says, man, I got the latest magic elixir uh, that's used on all kinds of boats and, and uh, uh military equipment around the world and it uh, makes their joints last forever and and our materials and processes guys looked at it and our, our manufacturing guys looked at it and quite frankly bottles with brushes in them to put on every little thing that we stuck together on the production line just did not get anybody excited and they say well what makes us think we need that i mean we've got some airplanes flying out there that have been flying for 50 years and the joints in those have not set the airplanes on fire. Well, and the reason was they were properly made up in the first place. So rather than, than look for additional ways maybe to, to improve on, on joint quality, it's maybe getting the quality uh, adequate in the first place, and that's getting it tight. Yeah, Bob, I think that's a, a good point. And just maybe to piggyback onto that, if you have your electrical connections and you have crimp on spade connections onto your alternator or your, your regulator and, and those are, are tight and you kind of wiggle them when you're doing your inspection and it, they don't wiggle and they're, and they're tight, they're going to last a good long time, whether they have any kind of Dow DC4 or silicone grease in them or not. If yeah. they're, if they're wiggly and they're starting to get black grime, you can you can put whatever you want in there. There's a fundamental problem that you need to address. You need to have good, solid connections. They need to not wiggle. And if they are vibrating because the wire is unsupported, well, there's your problem. Support the wires so they're not wiggling and loosening those connections up over time. Yeah, and on uh, particularly with respect to the, the spade terminals, there are some pretty good variations in the uh, the metal that's used to make the female uh, uh, receptacles. And I recommend that you spend the money to get AMP or Thomas and Betts or one of the name brand uh, fast on type terminals. You can get them from DigiKey and, and yeah, they might cost you twice as much as the ones at the hardware store, but they are made out of the right material to stay on there for a long time. Going with cheap terminals, especially those female fast-on terminals, you're going to use more of those than anything else in your, in your electrical system anyway. So if you go to to the, the auto store and you buy a pack of these things, you're going to save a couple of bucks. It's going to be really convenient, but but it's not about the money. It's, you're going to be setting yourself up in a false economy type system. Yeah, you save a little bit of time, but you're going to, you're going to buy all that time back with problems down the road. Just order from BNC or DigiKey. Get the good ones. They're going to crimp on better. They're going to last forever, and you're not going to have any problem. You got it. You got it. And this is a problem with Jabiru. Jabiru comes right from Jabiru with a, a big, fat female terminal on the alternator pigtail on the engine. 
And uh, the connections that are on those, they look like they're good and robust, but they're kind of chintzy. And so you need to cut those things off and put decent, you know, connections on the alternator pigtail. And then likewise, you will get a Kabuta tractor voltage regulator that has the the six spade terminal big white plastic oem plug and and a garden tractor that only you know runs a a headlight on your on your mower at a couple of amps maybe that plug is okay because you're never going to stress the system high enough to to overheat those connections but in a, a 20 amp jabiru alternator that could be working at 20 amps to recharge that low battery you're going to overheat that plug and you're going to physically melt the plastic in that OEM plug. So you do not want to go there. Just cut that thing off and put some decent connections on that also. Right. Right. I liked uh, most of the fast on terminals, even on the, the Cessnas, when we started using those on the early Carling rocker switches, uh, the only switches that carried any current was landing light and pedo heat. And everything else was, uh, you know, six, seven amps or less. And there was it was no big problem, but if you had a had a problem with a switch down down the line, it was going to be one of those that was carrying a lot of current, uh, continuous duty current. And fortunately, neither landing lights nor pedo heat were uh, were on all the time. You didn't you know you didn't have a continuous duty with them. Uh, I think that one of the first times we saw consistent problems with the fast on terminals was when they came out with strobe power supplies that were constant energy and as the bus voltage goes down they would draw more current to keep the output of the strobes up and so when you're sitting on the on the ramp if you start the engine up and and maybe you'd go ahead and turn the strobes on and the bus voltage was low that was the time they would draw the most current is when the alternator voltage was low and we had a whole rash of uh, of switch failures on uh, strobe lights which just mystified the heck out of me for a while until we figured out what was going on. But again, it was a matter of, of using the good uh, fast on terminals with the foster bronze uh, uh, metal to metal joints, and those problems went away. Well, Bob, there's one other area that I think is a, a good best practice, and that is you know that anything that stresses the alternator system is going to put stress on the voltage regulator, the cooling of the voltage regulator, the connections in your wiring, the whole deal. And so one of the best things you can do is don't go out and go fly if your battery has gone flat because you haven't charged or maintained it. If you can't get your engine started, don't think, how do I get this thing started so I can blast off on my desired flight? You need to stop and recharge your battery, put it on an actual, you know, maintainer appropriate for your battery. And they're going to be a little different for, you know, lithium batteries or Odyssey batteries or whatever. But but definitely don't jumpstart your engine and then go fly because your alternator is going to be working that much harder to recharge that battery. And that's going to stress everything in between. And you will just create all kinds of problems for yourself. Yeah, the only time I have ever popped a B-lead breaker on a certified airplane was after I jump-started the battery. It was a cold morning, and uh, we got the airplane going, and I thought I'd I'd sat long enough on the ground to get some pretty good charge on the battery. But we took off, and my wife and I were, I don't know, 30 minutes south of Wichita, and all of a sudden the panel starts going dark. And there was no low-voltage warning on the airplane. It was the old battery ammeter thing. And I looked down there, and the, and the B-lead breaker on the alternator was popped. 
and uh, and it popped, and I didn't even know it had happened. And I, I knew exactly why it had happened, because the alternator was cool. It was putting out a lot of ex- extra current, and the battery was flat, and I was running everything in the airplane. And uh, and it, it, it popped uh, the, the breaker. And then the, the overshoot on the alternator killed the regulator. So I had to land and put a charger on the airplane, and we charged it up and then flew the rest of our trip with a battery only. But <laughs> those, are, those are the kind of things you can encounter if you don't... Uh, uh, don't take off with a fully charged battery. It's it's a good thing to do. Now, here's a scenario that I've seen happen. And if you go out on a Saturday and your you know your your voltage is low and you can't get it started, you can throw your charger on and come back in a couple hours, or just come back on Sunday and fly. That's not a big deal. You can usually talk yourself into doing the right thing on on that. It's just a local flight. Where the problem is, is you fly to Oshkosh and you've been in the campground for a week and it's the last day of the show and you really want to get home. And oh, by the way, there's weather coming in. So you'd like to depart on schedule. And now your battery's flat because of whatever happened over the week at Oshkosh. And you have a lot of pressure to go ahead and and get that engine running. If you don't have a a float charger or something that you can maintain your battery with you, you're going to be very tempted to just do whatever it takes to get that battery started and depart Oshkosh ahead of the the, the wave of departures, and then you're going to have these problems halfway home. Well, yes, and and, uh, one of the best hedges against that is know your battery. In other words, uh, have a battery that has enough capacity in terms of its chemistry to operate your minimum essential loads for whatever you've decided your endurance value is. And I hope it's a good bit more than 30 minutes. That's all the FAA likes to require is 30 minutes. I like to require for duration of fuel aboard. If you can't operate minimum avionics such that you run out of fuel before you run out of battery, your battery's too small or it's improperly maintained. Now, having said that, uh, nobody would jumpstart the battery and go launching off into the blue because he's, he's launched off with a battery that's at 2% or 5% or 10%. And it's, and then it just adds to your risk. Now, if you got a, any kind of vehicle around, fine, uh, use jumper cables and hook it to a car battery and have the thing sit there at fast idle for 30 minutes. And that'll bring the battery up to more than 50% in, in a very short period of time as if you had a big alternator running on the engine. and But uh, to take off right after you've jump-started the, the, uh, uh, the engine is, is well, it's, it's, it's adding to your risk. <laughs> That's just the simple, uh, simple uh, answer to it. All right, good. Um, let's, uh, let's make the transition now, because we, we've hit on some of these areas on lithium batteries, but uh, I do want to include this before we... You run out of time completely. So, Bob, there, there's there's several key points that I want to hit. One, uh, the differences in your your needs of your electrical system when we're talking about lithium batteries compared to a typical lead acid, you know, an Odyssey battery. Uh, two, how the BMS can be your friend or can potentially bite you under the wrong circumstances. And then three, just best practices for, for lithium batteries that you have kind of gleaned over the years on, on the list. So um, let's, let's hit the main points and we'll fill it in as we go. So let's start with just in general, again, high-level overview. In general, 
from a user's perspective, what are the differences that we're going to notice between a lithium battery and a lead acid battery? Well, of course, everybody's uh, uh, really gets kind of all excited about taking weight out of the airplane. I mean, that's that's the first thing that 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 the battery is sold on is golly, look, I've got this battery that weighs a third of what's in there now, and it'll start your engine just fine. And uh, and that's a strong selling point. But if you're going to do the full up system integration for putting a different battery in the airplane. You have to cover not only will it start the engine, but also how long will it run by avionics if the alternator quits. And this was a problem I had with the early offerings of lithium batteries onto, onto uh, amateur build airplanes was they talked about the lead acid equivalency. And all they were talking about was cranking capability. Says, well, this three-pound battery will do the same cranking as this 18-pound lead-acid battery. And everybody says, oh, cool, man, I'm going to save 15 pounds. Except what they didn't tell you was that that, that three-pound battery was 1.5 ampere hours, and it had no energy in it. You had one chance to start the engine, and if the alternator didn't come online, well, there was nothing left to run avionics. So after a, a little bit of prompting and chiding on them, I got them to start putting the actual amper hours of capacity on their labels as well as the lead acid equivalency readings. But that's something you need to be careful of. Just saving the weight is, is only part of the, of the decision. You, you have to consider how much energy the battery contains and how long will it run avionics, necessary avionics, with the alternator offline. Uh, and so the weight savings may not turn out to be all that much because you may find that you're going to need one with a heck of a lot of lead acid equivalency just to get the amper hours of capacity you want. The other thing that has bugged me for a long time on the lithium is I've still not really reconciled the return on investment for uh, putting a lithium battery in the airplane. Because if you've got an airplane that that was not designed around lithium in the first place. So you had a, a PC 680 in there in the first place. Okay. Now you put a lithium battery in the airplane got lighter. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, how much did that shorten your takeoff roll? Uh, do you really honestly put that many more pounds of luggage back behind the seat because you've got a lighter battery? Uh, did your fuel tank get bigger now that you could put six more pounds of fuel aboard because you've got a lighter battery? And those are, are questions that never really get answered from a systems integrator standpoint. In other words, they didn't wrap the airplane around the ba that battery in the first place. So in the final analysis, you bought a battery that cost two or three or four times as much as the lead acid battery. But what have you gained in terms of aircraft performance for having put in the lighter battery and I, I can't answer that question for everybody but i suggest they ask that question of themselves and calculate it out uh, you know is that return on investment for that lighter battery really there the downside of the lithium is those little puppies are fragile you discharge them below a certain value and they're dead you can take a lead acid battery down to nothing, and as long as you catch it within a few days or it's cool weather, you can pretty much get the battery back by recharging it. But you discharge a lithium battery very far, and uh, I think about 2.8 volts per cell or whatever that number is, and that battery is trash. 
So that's why they put a battery management system in there that will disconnect the battery from the bus if the voltage gets too low. Uh, the same battery management system might disconnect from the battery from the bus if the voltage gets too high. And they got another feature that disconnects the battery from the bus if you draw too much current out of it or try to stuff too much current into it. Or they might disconnect it from the bus if the battery gets too hot. Those are the things a battery management system does for you. But, oh, wait a minute. Uh, we've never had lead acid batteries automatically disconnect themselves from anything. So how does the system behave when you got a battery management system that is worried about the battery and not worried about the airplane. So that's a whole nother ball game. You, you, uh, and we've had guys now with the uh, uh, BMS style batteries that, that have had unpredicted behaviors because of the BMS and the battery. The, that, and, and that's basic, basically it in a nutshell. I'm not, you know, lithium batteries are just really amazing in terms of their energy to weight ratio. And I'm designing some stuff with lithium in them, but I'm having to put cell equalizers in them and special chargers and all that kind of stuff. And the, the product though is being wrapped around lithium in the first place. And I'm designing that into the product, but uh, just to take your lead acid out and throw a lithium battery in there is you really need to sit down and think about that. <laughs> it's just really a good thing to do. Yeah, and uh, th that brings me to the second point, which is the the pros and cons of the BMS. And you talked about, you know, your your system being damaged unintentionally by the BMS. Well, I guess maybe to understand that, we have to understand what does the BMS attempt to accomplish for you. And that, simply put, is that it, it is in the background watching the voltage and the current coming into and out of the battery so that it doesn't get outside of the usable parameters. Right. You can't draw it too fast. You can't charge it too fast. You can't, um, you can't draw it down to too low a voltage and you can't charge it up at too high a voltage. Right. And so it's watching for any excursion outside of its normal operating windows. And if it detects something that doesn't doesn't fit, then it just cuts it off stone dead cold, and that way it can't damage the the battery itself. Right. And and that's not a bad thing, you know. You want you you have an expensive, relatively fragile battery. You want that battery to protect itself so that you don't inadvertently damage it. However, if it does that at the wrong time, such as when your alternator is going nutso and it's trying to to overvolt your entire bus, if the battery disconnects itself to to protect itself and you ultimately have to disable your alternator, then you could lose everything at that point. You may not be able to have that reliable backup battery powering your engine or your, your EFIS. And that's a huge deal if you have an electrically dependent engine that has fuel injection or a computer or something like that. Right, right. So uh, that's, uh, I'm not saying that they're a bad deal, but do it with knowledge and caution to make sure that the failure modes that are all accounted for and, and you're not going to get an unhappy surprise because you didn't check off the box. Right, right. Okay, well, um, Gary, you have, you have dual lithium batteries in your project. Um, what... What are your thoughts on on uh, appropriate use of lithium in in your airplane? I, 
you know, as, as I sit back and try to try to comprehend a lot that's been said here, um, I, I'm afraid some of it got too technical. Probably, I know for me, and I suspect for a lot more of our other listeners too, they're just trying to get into this. Um, I kind of wish we could do another episode and maybe do, maybe do some more vocal schematics on actually how to accomplish some of these things. You know, it, it looks to me as if we can. We're, we're kind of like the NASA thing: is is how many redundancies and, and, and failure modes do we try to predict, uh, not to have a single point failure? It always comes back to the same thing, Bob. I think you would kind of agree. You know, what's the real risk, benefit, cost, and likelihood of something to go on? Um, we, we always have an ultimate failure uh, in in the system somewhere, and particularly if we talk about our engines. You know, if the crankshaft goes, you know, you're just done. There's there's there is no backup. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult question to say. I mean, I do have uh, two uh, two batteries in, in series. What 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 kind of batteries are you running? I, I am using Orthex lithium lithium ion batteries. Okay. And yeah. I have a pair of them uh, so that I can either run, uh, you know, either battery both batteries or you know however it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, well, your your probability of risk, even with one battery, with a, like a twenty amp alternator, is not is not great. And and I have to I have to keep reminding myself of the of the class of alternator system we're talking about here, because uh, my readers cover everything from uh, from ultralights to Lance Air fours with hundred amp <laughs> alternators and air conditioning systems in them. So, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's that's really kind of the difficult thing to touch on or, or to cover really solidly in a, in a limited form like this is uh, that system integration thing. When we sit down to make a change on an airplane, all of a sudden five or six different people in different specialists sit up straight in their chairs and we have to really go through all the sift, all of it out. And hopefully we, we cover all the bases and sometimes we miss them. Uh, I've, I've worked some problems out at, out at the beach aircraft factory that we missed some things that cost the company millions of dollars in warranty repairs and boy, that, <laughs> and a lot of customer bad will, uh, because things were missed. And, uh, well, that's what I was trying to bring about my, my question a little bit earlier on is with dealing with these relatively low power output, as I understand it, stator alternators, um, you know, how exotic do we need to be uh, with this particular system? Well, under, I'd, I'd wire them per the, the schematics that showing the Z figures. Yeah, I'd put some over-bullish protection on them, uh, and, and that'll uh, – uh, your likelihood of ever needing it is very, very low. But uh, the risk is not zero, and it's cheap. I don't know, it's 30 bucks, something like that. And uh, – and then if you want to run lithium batteries, you could run the AeroVolts batteries. Uh, you're not going to hurt the batteries in terms of overcharge or overcurrent. Uh, your biggest risk is uh, not having low voltage warning that tells you that the alternator has quit and you run the battery down too low and then you kill it because it got too, uh, got too low because there's no battery management system on those batteries. So it's uh, with the EarthX, it's no big deal. But with the AeroVolts, which is a really a capable battery from an energy perspective, but it has no protection whatsoever. So uh, it, there's no cut and dried thing here. We we need to 
that's why I like to have guys get on the get on my forum. Let's talk about your system configuration. See what makes sense for the way you're running your airplane and what equipment you'd like to put in it. Gary, here, here's my thought on just you know very simply put. Uh, I think lithium batteries can be a great option. Um, I think that if you simply slap a lithium battery in your AeroV powered Sonics and you have you have you know no over voltage protection, there is an increased risk that the alternator could start acting up and that could damage or shut down your your EarthX battery in flight. Is it is it the end of the world? Probably not, but there's a slightly increased risk. If you simply add over voltage protection to your system, now your risk goes way down because the over voltage protection is one more layer that will keep the alternator from abusing the the bus before the the BMS on the battery has to kick in. Couple that with not leaving your master on and and draining your battery down, or if it does get drained down for whatever reason, charging it back up before you go out and fly. And I think the the risks are, are very minimal. You get all the benefit of the lighter weight and a, a really good battery. Uh, and, you know, 10 pounds in a Sonics is relatively more useful than 10 pounds in a Bonanza. So I, I think there's still that. Well, Jeff, uh, I, <clears throat> I was an early adopter of the AeroVolt uh, lithium battery for my Sonics. I loved it. It would weigh like two pounds. It would turn my engine very fast. I left my uh, master on and I now have a $300 paperweight. Um, I went back to the lead acid Odyssey batteries and I'm happy with them. And my biggest, my biggest fear flying right now, and this is sad, but is my iPad losing charge in flight because then I lose all situational awareness. Yeah, well, <laughs> that that's uh, that's not a bad uh, worst case scenario. If you can keep your iPad happy, then you're in good shape too. So. Well, it keeps the kid happy because he's playing games things. on. You know, we're talking about uh, protection of the electrical system, irrespective of whether it's a, a lead acid battery or a uh, a lithium battery. You know, if, if we just talk about the weight savings, like Bob was talking about. Personally, my experience in the Sonics that I had, um, the CG is so neutral on it that I actually think it was beneficial to add additional weight up front. So necessarily, specifically in in a Sonics airframe, I would not really be a proponent of using a a lithium battery um, because I think you need a little bit more forward mass to improve your CG and your handling characteristics. Certainly something to consider. Absolutely, Gary. That was... That was my problem because I have a WayX, and WayXs tend to be um, a little bit tail heavy. And so when I went to the lithium, my CG moved back uh, because I moved 10 pounds off the nose. And when I put the lead acid battery back on, it actually became a, a better aircraft. From okay, handling so I'm still trying to go back to the basic question is, is it with the stator alternators, if we have a failure of the regulator, how much power is it likely to put out and how much likely is it really going to cause a catastrophic failure downstream in the current generation of avionics that I think most people are going to be installing in the aircraft? I think it's a matter of risk, Gary. Um, I, I would not say that it's a really likely thing that you're going to have you know, your whole panel go up in smoke if, if it fails. Um, there certainly is risk that 
a very simple addition of the the crowbar system will help further reduce you know how much is that worth to you i don't know that's that's kind of a personal question i think for the price and the complexity of the crowbar it's money well spent just to add that extra insulation against something that misbehaves down the road it's also another i mean i'm just playing difficult the devil's advocate here it's also another connection point which is another potential failure spot though is it not bob well, certainly, uh, re- reducing complexity always improves reliability. Yeah. But uh, uh, I, y- your your question is not bad. It's just something I can't quantify. In other words, uh, and that's what I'm really trying to bring up to all of our all of our listeners. Yeah. Is, is, when, when, you're, yeah. when you're doing a failure mode effects analysis to reduce risk, you don't quantify anything. You say this thing might fail. It's it's failure. Its potential for failure is not zero. And so, how will I know that it's failed? Is it pre-flight detectable? Uh, how will it affect the outcome of the flight if it happens in in uh, uh, in the air? Uh, uh, you go through all of that litany of questions, and then say, okay, what does it take to push that that risk down to zero? If not, at least cut it down. If not, reduce it to zero. Well, the crowbar over voltage module says. Any overvoltage condition of 16 volts or more for half a second is going to shut the alternator off. Okay, cool. That reduced that item risk to zero. Now, to go over and say what is the probability of that happening at all on a on a belt-driven alternator on a Cessna 150? Well, it's pretty significant. We've seen it happen on your Sonics. I don't know, but it's it's still not zero. So having the overvoltage protection in there is takes that that uh, the outcome of that to uh, to a non-event. Now we could do NASA reliability studies and say, well, the chance of this happening one in six billion hours is oh okay, I won't worry about it. But I, we don't have enough data to do that, and we wouldn't want to take the time to do it either. <laughs> Those are laborious. <laughs> to recap again, though, when we talked about the potential for the regulator failure. It was more so likely to fail as a total output rather than a total throughput? Yeah, you're more likely to just simply lose energy as opposed to get an overvoltage condition. That's true. So if we're monitoring the electrical system then, it's been my understanding, and gosh, I hope I'm not going to be wrong since I'm going to say this, it's better for us to keep more of an eye on our voltage status than our amperage status. Oh, yeah. The current... The, the, Ammeters in airplanes are useless okay. in flight. They are and diagnostic tools. You use those on the ground. Yeah, and for most of and for many of us, again, too, a lot of the guys like to use the MGLs. I used MGL, too, and the Sonics. And I was surprised how many instruments now already include a voltage meter. Yes. Uh, I, I even had voltage meters in my, trans, my transceiver. Um, yep. MGL. I had a voltage on my uh, EPIS from the MGL. We've got one on the Dynon as well. Um, so there's there's lots of good potential to monitor that as a as an output failure, uh, even if we don't particularly have a throughput failure uh, system. That's right. And if those have got an alarm function built into them, that the most do. Do they? As far as low voltage, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Actually, both, well, both ways, high, well, high and low. High okay. and low voltage. And, and your, your 
your likelihood of having an over voltage event that you can't manage manually is exceedingly low. So you wouldn't need to put over voltage protection on it if you've got all those voltmeters plus an alarm function. Yeah, mine, mine just mine talks to me day and night. I mean, it just okay. like everything. And that's what I'm seeing in most of the, most of the newer avionics that people are starting to put in. Well, when it yells at you, reach over and flip the switch. Yeah. Yeah, but that that's a good point just to kind of maybe uh, draw some some summary conclusions. However you design your electrical system, you as the pilot have certain responsibilities to 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 monitor the voltage. You know, if the voltage gets too low, well, you're you're going to be running your battery flat and then, you know, what's going to happen? You're going to either start shutting down your instruments or you're not going to be able to, you know, continue on. If your voltage goes too high, you're going to potentially damage those instruments. So you have to wa- you have to monitor this. If you have a voltmeter that you just stare at 24/7, that is one way to accomplish that monitoring task. If you have a an automatic system that is helping you manage that, that relieves you of some of that workload. And if you have something in between, such as a programmable EFIS that has a limit that can then alert you uh, you can you can get the alert and then you can make a decision relatively quickly to to mitigate the damage. So, however you approach it, you need to understand kind of your responsibilities in keeping all this done and have a plan to do that. Agreed. Okay, so we talked about the the pros and cons of the BMS. Um, I mean, again, the the BMS does a great job of protecting the battery from abuse, but may not necessarily protect your airplane bus and your instruments. Uh, So just make sure you think that through. And probably the number one thing is recognizing if you're going to go to a lithium battery, you might need to have a little bit more robust and refined electrical system to provide a little bit of this monitoring. You might have to have some backup capability if you have an electrically dependent engine, like you're putting in you know, a, a Rotax 912 IS with its fuel computer or a UL power or a Viking or something along those lines that requires electrical power. You might just need to think that through. And then you might need to really pay attention to the manufacturer limitations when they say, hey, uh, don't over discharge your battery. If it gets below this voltage, you need to put it on the charger and charge it back up. Don't try to charge it too fast. Don't try to charge it too, discharge it too deeply. Understand what those limitations are and make sure you follow them. That's probably the simplest thing. If you're going to go with an Odyssey battery, you might have a little bit more robust battery that can take a little bit more abuse. That might make your job slightly easier. But again, same caveats, you probably need to understand the limitations and, and follow the, band, the battery's recommendations. Yeah, I'll go along with that. Boy, we covered a lot of ground. Um, Bob, over to you for some final concluding thoughts. Well, <clears throat> one of the problems I have in, in dealing with amateur building aviation is there's probably no two airplanes are built the same way. And, but yet, uh, uh, a lot of the builders are looking for what they call the, I would call a cookie cutter solution. And to be sure, uh, uh, Tony Ben Gillis's firewall forward books have, have helped people get probably 10,000 airplanes in the air and they're perfectly good, uh, good airplanes. But if you're, if you're working with a very narrow range, limited if your airplane's limited in any kind of performance, certainly the Sonics is not, you know, it's not a heavy hauler. It's not a, a high altitude, fast cruiser, and you're not going to put an oxygen system in it, and you're probably not going to do it cross countries. 
But on the other hand, there are limitations or capabilities of the airplane that call for some judicious optimization of the hardware you select to put in it. And then, and that's where these, these kinds of discussions and getting on, uh, on knowledgeable forums will help the builder make those, those decisions rationally instead of, uh, and, 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 and when, they ask questions, make, ask for numbers. You know, <laughs> if people haven't got numbers to put on it, then they're just guessing. And, uh, and so I try to avoid that. Uh, and the failure mode effects analysis very seldom deals to numbers. It's either going to do it or it isn't going to do it. And you work to uh, mitigate the risk by going to a plan B for when it does it. And that's the easiest way to build these little airplanes. And I would encourage people to learn how to do that or get with other folks that know how to do it. And, uh, and, and you've got a really great market. To, I mean, some of the finest airplanes flying are built in people's basements and garages. Now, I'd rather have a nice home built than something come on off the factory floor any day. So you guys keep up the good work. All right. Well, thanks again, Bob. Uh, I appreciate your insights, and uh, it, it's it's helpful to hear your perspective, having seen a lot of different examples, having had uh, you know uh, ten plus years of discussion on the Air Electric list, all your work you put into the book, and uh, just the the background that you bring from your professional experience. So I think that's invaluable. We got to continue to try to condense this down to easy to understand, easy to implement chunks that we can then get out into people's hands and get them to use these things. Well, let's do this more often. If they got specific areas you want to cover in more detail, we can sure do it. Okay, that sounds good. And we will definitely have you back on and, and we'll pick another one of these areas and we'll continue to delve into it. I guess for my concluding thoughts, I'm going to summarize it like this. Don't let anything that we've talked about in this episode overly worry you. This is not really that hard. So we talked a lot about, you know, the things that could happen, different ways that can fail, the analysis that you need to do when you when you create a good uh, electrical system. And all that's true, but let's make sure we keep perspective on, on this. The simple list of tips that I would offer can help mitigate a lot of these things. So first off, the overvoltage protection system that B, that BNC specialty sells is super easy to use. Uh, I will put some some references in the show notes so you can see exactly how to hook it up. But the bottom line is you buy this kit. It's 75, 80 bucks, whatever it is. It has all the bits and pieces in. You use it to control the AC line of your alternator. And uh, if you have a regulator failure of, of whatever variety, this thing is going to help you manage it. If you want to shut down your alternator, you now have a switch that you can flip to turn off your alternator. And it does it in a way that won't damage anything. If the voltage goes haywire, the, the crowbar is going to be monitoring and it's going to shut down your alternator for you. And then you can use your EFIS with a, a programmable alarm for low voltage to tell you if you're draining your battery beyond where you would expect it to be. So do that, and it's a simple solution to control your alternator. If you have a regulator failure, it's most likely to just stop charging. And then if, if it's one of those rarer cases where something is trying to self-destruct, uh, your system will take care of that. It'll shut it down before it causes a fire and does anything like that. If it, if it just stops outputting voltage and your battery starts to run down, well, 
you need to diagnose that and address it. Don't try and jumpstart your battery. Don't try and limp into the air because you really want to get home. Make sure that you top off your battery if you haven't been flying for a while. And if you're going to go on a trip, bring your charger with you. So at the worst case scenario, if your alternator is starting to act up or has failed completely, you can throw your charger on your battery and top it off. And then if you have to, you can fly battery only to get to the next destination. And if your battery is sized like all of ours are, you know, your typical Odyssey or EarthX battery is going to have tons of capacity, and you can do that without a problem. It's only going to be a problem if you start off with a with a nearly dead battery and you have no other options and you're on the road. That's where you're going to push it and create problems for yourself. When you do your annual inspection, get in there and check things out. Make sure your terminals are, are good quality terminals. They're crimped on tight. There's no black goo in there that shows that they've been vibrating. You don't have wires hanging unsupported coming out of your alternator where they're going to break the stator coil or vibrating on the bottom of your, your regulator where they're going to loosen those terminals up. And if you really want to do things well, put a little bit of Dow DC4 lithium grease in your joints and that'll help keep the oxygen and and moisture in the air from getting in there and starting corrosion. You're going to stress your system the most when you have to do the most charging. So if your battery again is relatively flat and you go jump in and go fly, just know that you're going to stress that regulator as it tries to pump as much current as you can back into your battery to top it off. So if everything's in good shape, no problem. It'll handle that without any problem. If your battery's getting a little old, your system's getting a little stressed, your joints are getting a little corroded, whatever, your regulator has been acting up, man, that's a, you're starting to stack one probability on top of another and, and the probability climbs that you may have a problem. So again, these are really simple things to do. If you're going to use a lithium battery, uh, make sure that you think it through and that you don't do it for the wrong reasons. If it's a good way to save 10 pounds and that 10 pounds is going to help you and you don't mind spending the money, great, do it. If you're going to use a lithium battery, though, I highly recommend that you use the crowbar overvoltage protection system and make sure that it's integrated in so that the battery is protected from the alternator and the bus is protected from the battery's BMS that may kick in in a, in a weird overvoltage type event. And then lastly, treat that lithium battery gently. Follow EarthX's or, or AeroVolt's recommendations. Don't overcharge it. Don't over-discharge it. And if you need to, throw it on the charger and take care of it. You can't abuse it like you would your car and expect it to give a long life. So that's my, my really simple condensed tips. I think it's helpful to understand the background and where these things come from. It's, um, it's also helpful to, to build buy-in as to why we're recommending these types of things. If you understand the why, it makes it a little easier to say, yeah, okay, I, I get it. I'm committed to doing some of these simple things because I understand why that's important. All right. Well, Bob... Once again, uh, appreciate all your insight and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Well, just a couple of final announcements here. So I want to give some uh, a shout out to a couple of emails that we received. We got some feedback on our last episode. And one of them was um, about the Nicosil cylinders. So the question that came in was, how do you know if you have the aluminum Nicosil cylinders on your Aerovie. 
Well, the simple thing is if the cylinders are not installed on the engine, they're just substantially lighter. So you can pick up a cylinder, and if it feels like a hunk of, of very dense steel, well, that's one thing. But if it has a really kind of a light, um, feathery feel to it, you're going to know right off the bat that's a Nicosil cylinder. If it's already installed on the engine, such as you just got a good deal on a used engine, it's been assembled, but it's never even been installed, but you don't know whether you have Nicosil on there, well, that's when you need to go get your magnet out and run your magnet over the cylinder itself to see if it's strongly attracted to the cylinder. The Nicosil, it's not going to be attracted to. And just make sure that you test it in multiple places because you're going to have steel bits inside the cylinder in the wrist pin and in the piston area and up by the, the valves and all that so check it in multiple areas just to make sure that you're not actually picking up a magnetism on a steel part inside someplace do that and you'll get a good sense of whether they're nicocells or not and then the smart thing is just pull those cylinders and pistons off and advertise them for sale on ebay there's a dune buggy out there that is dying to put nicocells on there dune buggy guys love them they they seem to work a lot better in in sand rails and dune buggies than they do in, a, in our airplanes so you can sell it to a dune buggy guy and recover enough money to pay for a set of new steel cylinders get them from sonics or or get you know good high quality german mall cylinders and pistons and, uh, and that's all you really need to do so it's uh it's not that hard to change them over you will likely have to redo the shims because they're going to be a little bit different lengths. So if you if you don't have a complete set of barrel shims, order one of those when you order your new cylinders. If you have them in your parts box, great. Clean up your old shims and uh, you're right back to, to square one and just go through the manuals procedure to set the appropriate shim height to get your geometry to all work out and your compression ratio. So that's it. And then uh, worst case scenario, if you um, if you just can't get there, you may need new push rods as you totally redo your compression ratio and your shims and all that. And uh, so you might need to order one of those as well. But again, it's not hard to do and it's it's not worth stressing over. The second email we got was about the Dynon angle of attack system. So we were talking about G3X and, and low cost angle of attack options that are built into our EFSs. And somebody said, Hey, I think I saw in one of your videos that in your Dynon that you hooked up a very low cost angle of attack port to be able to use that option on your Dynon. Well, that's exactly right. The G3X, the MGL line, their, their later EFSs and, um, and the Dynon Skyview system. They all have the capability for an angle of attack using a differential pressure probe. So you can build or buy an existing pre, uh, differential pressure. It's like a pitot tube that has an extra port on it, and it uses that to feed into the instrument to calculate your angle of attack based on those pressures. Or if you don't already have that, you can very simply add a pressure pickup on the bottom side of your wing. So if you're interested in that, go into my YouTube channel. You can see a video where I describe that. But in, in short, you're going to install a port on the bottom side of the wing, you know, maybe four to six inches back from the leading edge. And what you want to do is you want to look at it from a side view and where a 30 degree line would, would sit tangent to the bottom surface of the wing, that's where you want to install that port. And that's going to exactly mirror how Dynon's probe looks and, and MGL's and, and uh, Garmin's angle of attack probe. And all you're going to do is you're going to take that pressure from a point that's, that's at a 30 degree angle 
from the uh, the, the oncoming air. And then you're just going to plumb that port into the, your angle angle of attack port on the back of your your um, AHARS or the actual EFIS unit, depending on whether the AHARS is separate or it's integrated into the back of the unit. And that's it. That's as, that's as much time as it takes. And then run through your EFIS calibration for angle of attack, and you're up and running. On the Dynon, about six inches, four to six inches back on the leading edge, I use just a regular CCP44 rivet. I knock out the the central mandrel, and I don't set it. I drill my hole, I poke that rivet in, and I use the unset tail on the inside of the wing as as a convenient place to slip over some vinyl tubing. I just put a little bit of a safety wire locking collar around the shank of the rivet so it won't fall out. You can use a little bit of epoxy or whatever you want and then slip your tubing on that rivet. Now you're using it as a pressure pickup port. Run your tubing to your EFIS and that's as simple as it is. So go look at the video. Take a look at your EFIS instruction manual and I think it'll all start to make sense. And uh, it's a great way to get angle of attack for pennies rather than a $200 specialized angle of attack probe. All right, so the last note is the upcoming Firewall Forward installation seminar. So we did this last year. It was very popular. We had good attendance and just had a great conversation over a day and a half. This one is going to be done once again in Kansas City. The seminar is going to be June 8th and 9th. That's a Saturday and Sunday. It'll be at the Lee Summit Airport in Kansas City. And you can go to the website and find all the details. But really... The, the key things that I, w- I want to talk about, there's a lot of things that, <clears throat> while they are simple in crafting a good, well-functioning, um, s- good setup on your firewall forward, they're not necessarily easy to do without the experience and best practices that you can incorporate. So what, what we're going to do is we're going to go through Everything that we've accumulated, tips and tricks, refinements, modifications, and then just explaining the instructions that Sonics publishes so that you can get it better the first time around. So there's a concept which I like to talk about. You know, the plane is done. You've had the inspector out. You have your airworthiness certificate in hand. The plane is done. But... But that's not actually done done. Done done is a year or two later after you've tweaked the baffles and you've modified the cowling and you've done this and you've done that to get the cooling and the carb set up exactly the way you want it. Our goal is that we're going to get you closer to done done the first time around. And so there's a whole ton of tricks that we're going to go through that there's nothing magic about them, but we're going to lay it all out for you so you can get closer to that done done right off the bat. So we're going to talk about engine cooling. We're going to talk about carb tuning, fuel systems, baffle modifications, all those types of things. So you can find the full list of itinerary uh, topics that we're going to cover and the schedule on the website. We're about a month out from that. So if you think you want to attend, send an email. Uh, There's an online registration form. You can do that or you can email in a registration form. Let us know you're coming. That way we can make sure we lay on enough barbecue and uh, save you a spot. So looking forward to seeing everybody out here and spending uh, two full days 
as we go through all the stuff. And again, one of the feedback items that we got is that a day and a half was great, but two full days would be even better because there's just a ton to talk about. So we're going to go basically, you know, like kind of like nine to five Saturday and Sunday and make sure that we have plenty of time to go over everything. Okay, well, you can find that on the website. Go to sonicsflight.com slash seminar, or you can find the link right off of the homepage on sonicsflight.com. All right, as we wrap this episode up, I just want to remind everybody that you can find the show notes for this episode at sonicsflight.com slash 55. You can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all those types of things. You can find our feedback email link on the website, or you can send it directly to feedback at sonicsflight.com. If you hear something that you're not quite sure about, you'd like a little bit more elaboration, or you just want to offer up uh, an anecdote, send us a note. If you have something that you think that we need to cover in in an upcoming topic, we'd love to hear about that. And certainly if you have a great guest idea, send them to us because uh, we really value feedback from you guys on telling us what's at the top of your list so we can put it at the top of our list. John, Gary, good to talk to you guys. Uh, I'm glad you're getting out there and getting lots of flying in. John, keep up the work on your conversion. Uh, I'm loving living vicariously through you. I think converting your B model is proven to be a lot of work, but man, you're going to have an awesome airplane when it's all done. So I'm a little envious, so keep up the great work. Gary, enjoy the good flying weather. I know you're going to be out there flying. You're always an inspiration to me when I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm getting kind of tired. I've been flying a couple hours already. I like to dig deep and think, what would Gary do? Gary would fly another couple hours. So I appreciate that, and I try to be more like you. We'll talk to you again soon, guys. Fly safe. Okay, guys. Take care. Bye, Bob. You bet. Bye-bye. Views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Select podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.